All right, I'm going to stay, start off with a prayer. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather and to hear your word. We just ask that you would be near tonight and that you would show us some new character of yourself so that we can walk away from here loving you and loving each other even better. In Jesus' name, amen. So I am just going to dive off this week right where we left off last week. Um, We're going to start off with Psalm 13 as our scripture. For the director of music is Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. So I chose this scripture because it's one we're familiar with. And I think that it very well encapsulates David's kind of lament structure. We've been studying a lot of his laments. And this one is, is obviously a very good example of the kind of similar structure that he uses in all of them, which is essentially, where are you, God? There are things that are happening that really, really stink. I need you to rescue me, but it feels like you're a million miles away and you're not even hearing my cry. I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. But at the end of the day, I trust you and I believe these circumstances aren't going to last forever. So Chris has done a really amazing job over the last five weeks, taking us on a journey through kind of a dark time in David's life, right? We've learned that the early years of his life were pretty charmed, and then that changed in an instant when Saul threw that spear. From that moment on, David would know the pain of betrayal and injustice, and he would become all too acquainted with fear and uncertainty. The God who was so near to him when he was singing and praising him for his beauty and creation and when he was fighting a lion and a bear with his bare hands all of a sudden was so distant and so silent. For the first time, he really needed salvation and it just didn't come quickly. If I were to guess, I think that David's response during this time in his life did more to mold and shape him into the future king that he would become and the man after God's own heart than anything else prior to this. No matter what was going on around him, he brought his painful and sometimes ugly honesty before the Lord. He could have been physically hiding in a cave, but he was emotionally exposed before the creator of the universe, sometimes if only to say, don't forget about me, (laughs) right? So tonight we're going, to, we're going to talk about David's response and how it can be a model for us in our own lives when we face these times of distress and heartache. So in my mind, I've kind of distilled the value of just simply showing up during these times to three. So three values. We're going to go through each one in detail. But there is an inward value, an outward value, and then an upward value we're going to discuss So first of all, we're going to look inward. Personal growth. 
So I define personal growth as the process of becoming the you that God created you to be. So being human means arriving on the scene as one big, beautiful, messy package of hope and potential and possibility and also fear and uncertainty and insecurity. The lifelong process of spiritual and emotional growth involves a commitment to show up before God and allow him to shine that mirror of revelation on us so that we can slowly but surely begin to bear his image through time, pain, lament, circumstances. He's stripping away that pain, that uncertainty, and we begin to bear the fruit of his spirit. So I am going to show us a quick little video. It's about a minute and a half long, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Stress and how we have to deal with stress. Okay. And I think it's an important thing because uh, many people have told me from my lectures it's the one thing they remember. Okay. And I was sitting in the nurse's office and looked at an article that said, How do lobsters grow? I don't care how lobsters grow. But I was interested in it. And it points out that a lobster is a soft, mushy animal that lives inside of a rich shell. That rizzy shell does not expand. Well, how can the lobster grow? Well, as the lobster grows, that shell becomes very confining. And we kind of the lobster feels itself under pressure and uncomfortable. It goes under a rock formation, protects itself from predatory fish, casts off the shell, and produces a new one. Well, eventually, that shell becomes very uncomfortable as it grows, right? Back under the rocks. And the lobster repeats this numerous times. The stimulus for the lobster to be able to grow is that it feels uncomfortable. Right? Now, if lobsters had doctors, they would never grow. Because as soon as the lobster feels uncomfortable, it goes to the doctor, gets a valium, gets a percocet, feels fine. And never catch up himself. So I think that we have to realize that we have to realize that times of stress are also times that are signals for growth. And if we use adversity properly, we can grow through adversity. Good stuff, right? So the first thing that I gleaned from that video is there's no growth without discomfort. So your small shell moment probably looks different than my small shell moment. And the small shell moment you encounter today is going to be different than the one you encounter three years from now. Because like a lobster, this is we're going to continue to encounter those. It could be the loss of a loved one far too soon, could be the betrayal of a close friend, could be a promotion at work that you feel like you're not ready for, like they're not always bad. I believe one of David's small shell moments was the spear being thrown. So how about a couple of other small shell moments in biblical history? Job lost everything. There's an entire book of the Bible devoted to essentially his lament to God and to his friends, right? Job 19, 7, and 8, though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. And then he lands on one, if not the greatest buts in biblical record. As for me, I know my Redeemer lives and in the end will stand on the earth. Moses had a lot of them right? The burning bush, 
probably all of his encounters with Pharaoh, the Red Sea, just to name a few. How about Jesus? Talk about the ultimate lament, the ultimate small shell moment. Seeing the pain and sacrifice before him. He's in the garden praying with his friends, literally sweating blood. We've all probably encountered stress in our lives. I don't know if any of us have sweat blood in those times of stress. He's praying, lamenting, and Matthew records his butt. Matthew 26:39. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus' butt becomes, in the end, I'm going to do your will. Like you can almost feel what he's feeling, right? If it's up to me, no chance I'm going through with this. But I'm going to trust that your will for my life is what's good and what's, what's right. So these moments necessarily thrust a choice upon us. Do I courageously lean into that feeling of discomfort, trusting and believing that the process of growth is a valuable one? Or do I hide from the pain, from the fear of failure, fear of vulnerability? See, I don't believe that growth is an inevitability. I think we have a choice. I think every time we're presented with these small shell moments, we have an opportunity to grow or not to grow. I spent a lot of years choosing non-growth because, frankly, growth can be really scary. And I think only now I'm realizing that non-growth is actually scarier because growth is where God's grace and presence is for tomorrow. second thing I learned from that video is there's no growth without vulnerability. So when the lobster emerges from its former shell and begins the process of forming a new one, it is extraordinarily susceptible to harm. The shell is virtually the lobster's only protection from its predators, right? So growth represents a very real risk. There's no denying that. And I think the same is true for us. So I've been on a Brene Brown kick lately. (laughs) If anyone here doesn't know who she is, you should totally check her out because her stuff's really great. But she, she defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So we all know that feeling, right? It's a lobster without a shell. It's a naked lobster. It's entering a relationship or a conversation or a season in life or a new job opportunity, knowing that there's a chance I could get hurt, and I probably will get hurt. But knowing that, deciding that the potential for growth and discovering who God has designed me to be is still valuable and it's worth the risk. True vulnerability is required for lament. Taking your heart to God in moments of heartache and injustice can be really scary. Or taking a naked lobster heart before the king of the universe, right? So that's why it's so, so, so important for us to commit to find that butt. Because all of a sudden it's not so scary if we can find that truth in our hearts that God is good, that he loves me and he gave himself for me. Then suddenly those laments don't come, don't, aren't quite as scary. So as Chris said, that's the fluff that we can write into our lament, right? We can't and shouldn't change the painful reality of our circumstances, but what we can do is decide how we're going to respond and whether or not we're going to grow 
by simply showing up in vulnerability before the Lord. True vulnerability is also required for personal growth. So, show of hands, who thinks we were all made in the image of God? Who thinks we are all unique? We're all created uniquely in the image of God. Okay, so what that means to me is every single person in this room, if allowed to become the person that God created you to be, is going to show the world a unique view of God's image. So if I don't allow myself to do that hard work of becoming that person, allow God to do that hard work on my heart, I'm denying the world of that view of God's image, which is a big-time bummer. It's not fair to the world, and it's not fair to me to do that. Oops. Growth is a process. Time and effort are required. So a lot of people like that quote. It doesn't matter whether you think you can or you think you can't. You're right. I tend to subscribe more to the idea of it doesn't matter what you think you can do. You can do more. Almost 10 years ago now, a friend and I, kind of on a whim, signed up for a marathon. Neither of us were runners. We could probably, certainly I could not run more than one mile. And I signed up to run 26.2. Eight months. After that insane decision to go ahead and sign up for that race, my friend and I crossed the line in Chicago, 26.2 miles behind us. There were some really valuable lessons that I learned in those eight months. Really simple, but I've never forgotten them, and I don't think I ever will. One of which is, you can do more than you think you can. There were times during that race and during the training, the months leading up to it, that I was absolutely certain I could not take one more step. I knew I was going to collapse where I was, but I decided to take one more step. I put one foot in front of the other, and I put one more foot in front of the other, and I continued to do that till the finish line was behind me. What eight months earlier would have been a complete impossibility was now reality. I think there are times in our lives when we feel like God's placed this thousand-pound boulder in front of us, and he's asked us to move it. We're good believers, so we push, and we keep pushing and pushing, and we're praying and lamenting and pushing, and then we decide, oh, we've got other tools in our toolbox, and so we start getting those other tools out, fasting and anything that might represent a ramp or a pivot or all these different things, and nothing moves. Nothing's happening. The boulder doesn't move. So then we get really angry, and we get really frustrated. We might feel ashamed. We get really tired, exhausted. You know, why is he asking me to do this? Doesn't he know this is impossible? Why in the world has he not stepped in by now? Nothing changes. Day after week, day after day, week after week, month after month, we're still pushing that stupid boulder. But if we continue to show up, to push, and to pray, and to lament, suddenly we find a but. God didn't ask us to move the boulder. He just asked us to push it. Now, all of a sudden, six months later, we understand why. Because now there's this 200-pound boulder over here that six months ago would have laid us flat, but now doesn't stand a chance against us. Because this entire time that I've been pushing and lamenting and praying and nothing is happening, I'm building up strength. I never would have had this strength had I not been presented with something that was absolutely impossible for me to overcome. 
But what happens is when we emerge from this season of pain and this season of distress, we find that circumstances that normally would have wiped us out don't stand a chance because we have a new strength that God birthed during that time of trial. So we've looked inward at personal growth. Now we're going to turn our gaze outward. So the value, one of the values of showing up is authentic relationships. So if the whole of the law is summed up in love God and love people, and we know that all of humanity is a big, beautiful, broken mess trying to figure out a way back to the garden, there may be no more authentic way to keep God's law, keep God's commandments, than to show up and be seen while you're on your journey to redemption. Authentic relationships marked by genuine connection require authenticity. Relationships devoid of authenticity are hollow and lonely. Showing up and lament to a friend is one of the most authentic things we can do. You know, we talked about how showing up before God is scary, but if we have that belief that he's good and that we can trust him with our hearts, it's less scary. Showing up before people, though, terrifying. <laughs> like, I still, to be honest, simply don't have that same trust in people's responses and people's intentions. There's still part of me that thinks they are going to crush my naked lobster heart <laughs> if I go to them. But the potential reward for authentically being seen by our people is true love, true connection, true joy. And if we choose not to, some part of our intimate life is going to be devoid of these things. And that's a lonely place to exist. David obviously had this in Jonathan. Think back to 1 Samuel 20. Remember when Jonathan got his own spear thrown at him by his father? Because... David was wondering if it was safe to stay or if he needed to flee. And Jonathan said, well, I'll find out. And so he goes to the feast. David's not there. So Saul asks where David is. Jonathan covers for him. Saul throws a spear at him. And Jonathan says, okay. He goes back out. And he and David had a, had a secret code. He was going to shoot these arrows. And the boy who was chasing the arrows, if he told him, they're in front of you. Come, come this way. They're in front of you. Then that was his signal to David. It's cool. You're safe. Stick around. And if he told the boy, they're past you, keep running, then he was telling David, you got to go. You're not safe. So he shoots the arrows. They go past the boy. He tells him, run quickly. David knows he's not safe. So then in 1 Samuel 20, 41 and 42, we see their goodbye. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. So, inauthentic relationships aren't going to lead you to risk your life for someone else. These guys, these two are the real deal. So the other value of showing up is the potential for legacy. You have no idea, I have no idea who's watching. David would be shocked to know that thousands of years later, on the other side of the world, in a completely, completely different language, people are gathering in places like this to read and study his songs and his poems that he wrote. Right? We're inspired by his life simply because he had the courage to be seen. He wrote it down. He recorded his angry and precatory psalms where he was 
utterly gutted and just emotionally vulnerable before God and before man, because remember these were public, to the choir director, to be sung publicly, because he had the courage to be seen. We have him as an example today. So think about anyone you consider an influence in your life, anyone you aspire to be in any way. I promise you that person demonstrated courage in a moment when it would have been easier to not show up. Whether we're looking at the life of our war hero grandfather or Moses or Jesus, you and I have that same opportunity for legacy. You know, maybe someone's will be a legacy of a fearless businessman who embrace vulnerability in order to innovate in their field and create new products and new systems that would push their, uh, their domain forward. Maybe someone's would be in raising a family with courage, owning your own mistakes, praying and growing together, sowing little seeds of grace and honor into fertile hearts. I think sometimes when we read some of these Psalms of David that we've studied in the second epic, it makes us uncomfortable. Like It makes me uncomfortable because I think he is not responding the right way. You're not supposed to say those things. You're not supposed to feel those things. Surely you're not supposed to say those things to God. But clearly God didn't see it that way. Like He honored David by making him a great king of Israel and by putting him in the lineage of Christ. So there's clearly something to learn there. So I'm going to be the first to admit that I have a long way to go in this area. This is definitely something that I'm trying to actively allow God to work in me. The idea that we might actually be fully seen for the broken mess that we are is really scary. We're afraid that if people we love, especially people close to us, see fully who we are, that maybe they'll be disappointed in some way. I think this is why we scramble to clean our house when we know company might be coming over. You know, we're like shoving clothes and toys into closets and throwing all the dishes into the dishwasher. I think this is why, as a leader at work, I'm tempted to shift blame or responsibility if I'm given honest feedback that might shine light on a potential area of growth in the way that I operate. I think this is why we post a very carefully curated version of our lives on social media. I'm guilty of this. My husband tries to post a picture of the kids and I'm like sweeping toys out of the background and putting their hair to the side so they don't look, <laughs> don't look homeless, you know. But <laughs> those highlights don't represent anyone's real life. And if they do, it's probably a performance and anxiety-ridden life that you don't want anyway. But let me tell you, we crave this type of honesty. This is why... I feel so good when I find out I'm not the only one who totally loses it and yells at my kids. Or I'm not the only one that gets so dang far behind on laundry that sometimes on Saturday nights I have three huge hampers of clothes dumped out on my bed waiting to be folded and put away. Jennifer shared a Brene Brown quote this week also on on Facebook, and it was so good that I just had to share it here tonight. Authenticity demands wholehearted living and loving, even when it's hard, even when we're wrestling with the shame and fear of not being good enough, and especially when the joy is so intense 
that we're afraid to let ourselves feel it. Show up, be seen, live brave. So now we're going to turn our gaze upward. There may be nothing more selfless than showing up in absolute despair before the Lord to say, listen, I am not okay. This is not okay. I can't even lift my eyes to see past the step in front of me, but I'm here. Whether we'd like to admit it or not, much of our faith lives are are selfish. We pray the sinner's prayer to gain salvation. We thank God for his blessings and pray that he'd spare us pain and sorrow. And these are not bad things. They do them. We should all do them. But we have to admit, they're still, they're still inherently selfish. But showing up with absolutely nothing to offer when the evidence lined up before us seems to show crummy circumstances that aren't going to change anytime soon and prayers bouncing off the ceiling fan never even making it to God's ears. Deciding in those moments to just show up and cry out to God and committing to find a butt and lament is nothing short of worship. So sometimes it seems cliche, but I think it's these times in life where we can more easily embrace the idea that there's nothing we can offer God that he hasn't provided. And I think that embrace brings us close to the truth that the most pure and selfless worship that we can offer is simply showing up. Pain, fear, uncertainty and all to show up and God will be faithful with that he will always always be faithful much later in David's life I think he came to this conclusion when he wrote I was young and now I'm old but I've never seen God's children begging bread or forsaken never seen the righteous forsaken or children begging bread so how do we respond to this So I talked about three different um, values of showing up. There was the inward, the outward, and the upward. And so this is going to be a little choose-your-own-adventure response. I'll offer three suggestions. And depending on kind of where you are in life and what resonates most with you, you can just kind of take hold of that. So the inward response would be identify a 1,000-pound boulder in your life and then identify a 200 200-pound boulder and thank God for the strength that you gained during that push. Ask for the grace to continue pushing the next time a 1,000-pound boulder shows up and trust that he will give you the grace and the strength that you need. The outward response would be commit to do one thing this week to remove that facade of perfection, whether it's taking initiative to lament to a friend or apologizing to your kids if you blow it or having someone over for coffee and not apologizing if there's dishes in the sink because those dishes might be just what she needs to know to see to know her life's not so bad. And then the upward response, if you're in a time of heartache currently and you've been lamenting to God, just know that that lament is enough. That worship you've been bringing him with your tears and only sometimes with words is pure and beautiful and it's enough. Just keep pushing, keep lamenting, and always show up. 